I am an emotional person. <laughs> and I am so grateful to be here this week. I, I told my wife and my kids that we were going to come this year. <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> of course, I can't, if I say I don't, my kids were going to lynch me, so that's another story. But, but it has been a wonderful week, isn't it? Uh, the, the teaching has been wonderful. I don't get a chance to hear my brothers teach or preach, but this week I heard some really good things. And I, I'm walking away today, going down the mountain uh, with a greater appreciation of God. I hope that you have too. And uh, I, I have been asked to, to give the last two teachings on the, probably the most uh, familiar of all God's attributes for us, uh, God's love and God's grace. There is nothing more wonderful than, than to hear of his love and grace. So let's pray, and then we'll get right into it. Uh, oh, Lord, our God, we do thank you that you are such a loving God, a, a wonderful God, a God that is unchangeable, a God that is all-knowing, a God that is all-powerful, and that you demonstrate that to us, not only by your word, but even by your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the cross. We ask you now, Father, that you would give us ears to hear, a heart that would be enlarged to receive these things, and, and a desire to fall before you in, in gratitude and in worship. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, of course, any discussion of God's love is going to have to spill out to the other attributes as, as we've been hearing all week. Uh, for instance, if we talk of God's love, we're going to have to hear about his goodness. Uh, we're going to have to hear of his patience. God is not easily provoked. He's not uh, envious. Uh, if we talk of God's justice, uh, we're going to understand that his justice is driven by his love for truth, for perfection, for goodness, for holiness. We've heard that God is independent. And because God needs nothing outside of himself, he doesn't depend upon any to give him joy. So his love for his creatures can be full and free and creative. Well, if there's any attribute perhaps that has been the most attacked by the enemies of God, it perhaps is this attribute of God's love. And it shouldn't come to any surprise to us that that might be the case, because after all, God made us to love us. And he made us that we might love him. And so if the enemy could attack our understanding of God's love or create any kind of doubt in our minds that God loves us, then we will fall away into idolatry or to autonomous behavior, you know, self, trying to be self-governed. And so let's go to Genesis chapter 3, the very familiar passage, uh, the first five verses, as we hear the first attack upon God. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, 
For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, as you hear that, obviously the serpent attacked God's truthfulness there, didn't he? I mean, God lied to you. He said that you would die if you did. You're not going to die. He attacked God's goodness. God knows or that in the day that you eat of this, uh, you will die. God wants to hold something good from you. He doesn't want you to, to match your full potential. He wants to oppress you, keep you down. You know, and, and Satan comes like a friend. Oh, I'm your friend. I'm telling you, I'm telling you something to help you, to, to free yourself from this oppressive bully. But ultimately, in all these attacks and all these things, what was he saying? God doesn't love you. If God loved you, he'd tell you the truth, wouldn't he? If God loved you, he'd help you. If God loved you, he wouldn't uh, try to hold something good from you. In, in the wilderness, as the people of Israel were leaving Egypt and they were going to the promised land, over and over again, what do you hear them say? God, have you brought us out here to die? Oh, what about those leeks and onions of Egypt? Even though they ate those leeks and onions under the bondage of slavery, we want those leeks. We, want, we don't want this manna. What were they saying? God, do you really love us? When Jesus was fasting for those 40 days before his public ministry, and you recall how Satan came and, and tempted him, again, what was he trying to do? He was trying to create doubt of God's love. If, if God really loved you, he wouldn't let you starve, would he? Show him what's what. Turn those stones to, to bread. If God loved you, he'd protect you. Why don't you test that? Why don't you see if he really loves you? Throw yourself off the pinnacle. Of the, of the temple. And what does God, what does Jesus say? How does Jesus respond to that? You remember? He kept going back to the word. He said, God has already spoken to us. He's already told us in his word that he loves us. He doesn't need to prove it over and over and over again through the circumstances. He's told us. Well, even today, men attack God's love. Uh, in the public arena, you have the likes of Richard Dawkins. There's this amazing thing that, that's developed in the last decade or so of what they call evangelical atheists. These are atheists that are going around deliberately trying to persuade people to become atheists with them. And, and Richard Dawkins is professor of Cambridge. He's one of the leading people. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. Uh, you're going to cringe when I, when I read this quote from him, but bear with me. Uh, the, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Now, there's a, a, an interesting statement there, but uh, we'll, we'll go on. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infantile, genocidal, felicitile, palestinal, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That long litany of accusations, the bottom line is saying, God is not a God of love. 
Basically, he's outlining the same accusations that Satan leveled against God from the very beginning. God doesn't care about us. God isn't loving. He wants to keep you down. He wants to press you. He wants to cover up his motives. Now, on one hand, we could say that Dawkins' problem really is that, that he wants to make God in his own image. I, I think someone said that, Mark Twain said, I don't know who actually really said it, but in the beginning, God made man in his own image, and ever since then, man has been returning the favor. But isn't that exactly what Dawkins is doing? I want God to be like me. I want him to love like I love. I want him to have a love like my love, and I want him to accept the things that I accept. I don't want to bow to his standard. I want him to bow to my standard. And if he doesn't do that, then he must not exist. And that's basically his argument. Dawkins' standard is that, that it's unloving for God to destroy and annihilate the Canaanites or the Amorites. It's unloving to reject homosexuals and transgender people. And again, since God does that, he must not be very loving. But what happens if, if Dawkins' definition, idea of love is wrong? And it is. And who made Dawkins the, the standard of all right and wrong? I mean, you disagree with him, and, and he really he goes to town on you. But, but who made him right? What happens if God is the standard, as the creator, as the one being who is in himself love. What happens if he gets to set the standard and tell us what's right and wrong? And of course, really, beloved, it's the cross that makes Dawkins' accusations utter nonsense, isn't it? You know, Paul kept going back and he kept saying, I boast in nothing other than the cross of Christ. And if someone comes to you, an atheist comes to you and starts accusing God of not being a very loving God, point him back to the cross. No one can accuse God of being unloving when they look at his love demonstrated there at the cross of Christ on Calvary. On the cross, our Savior Jesus died to save unpleasant, megalomaniacal, malevolent bullies such as ourselves. On the cross, God demonstrated his great and powerful life-changing love. If you read the stuff that Dawkins writes uh, and how he pours his venomous sarcasm about everyone who disagrees, with him, whether it be on religion or, or science or whatever, uh, you'll see that he's not a very loving person, not a very kind person. But, but I know one thing for sure. He would never send his son to die for me. And yet our God did. And so Dawkins and people like him can blast him all they want about God being unloving, uh, God being a racist or genocidal or, or a bully or whatever. But the cross shuts all that up and puts it into the category of stupid nonsense. Right? It, it's, what does the Bible call such people? Foolish. The cross shows his ignorance about what is loving, about what is good and holy. It shows his own hatred for these things. But turning the subject a little bit, how many times have you ever heard someone say, if God is a really loving God, he wouldn't send anyone to hell? 
I think Mother Teresa said, oh, hell exists, but no one's going to be there. Because after all, a loving God would never send anyone to hell. But again, God always acts in conformity to all his attributes. And so God is not only loving, he is just, and he is righteous, and he is holy, and he is good. Uh, hell may be cruel, but it is not unjust. And it's not unloving for God to send people to hell. After all, that's where they really want. They don't want to be in his presence. Now, God doesn't necessarily take delight in that. Ezekiel 18, verse 23, God solemnly declares, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked rather than that he should turn from his way and live? But you know what? If you've ever been wronged, you know how it feels when justice has not been accomplished. And is it loving to any victim that hell doesn't exist? In fact, in 2 Thessalonians, when, when the apostle writes to comfort this persecuted church, one of the things he says is that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming to do what? To bring justice on those who have persecuted you. It's loving. And of course, is it loving to let God's own righteousness be trampled underfoot by, by unrighteous men? Of course not. But in the private arena, when you enter into hardships or difficulties or tribulations, or when your heart is breaking through trials, do you ever question God's love? Do you ever say, God, if you love me, why? Why did you let me go through this trial? God, if you love me, why did you let that person come into my life to hurt me, to break my heart? God, if you love me, why didn't you protect me? Why didn't you heal my loved one from that cancer, that disease? Or perhaps when we sin, are we ever tempted to think that that, that sin is beyond God's love? Or I, I, God's love is limited, and, and, and I've stepped the line. I've gone one sin over the top, and now God can't love me anymore. Or perhaps, maybe he never loved me. Maybe God's punishing me because he doesn't love me. And so again, with all these attacks, with these misunderstandings, with these questions in our mind, with the doubts that are often slain against us, we need to touch upon his love, and understand it. We're going to only touch upon the tip of a great iceberg, but guess what? We're going to spend all eternity gazing upon his love, wondering at it, being astounded by it. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones once wrote and said, the more I study the New Testament and live the Christian life, the more convinced I am that our fundamental difficulty, our fundamental lack is the lack of seeing the love of God. It is not so much our knowledge that is defective, but our vision of the love of God. And I can only say amen to that. In my pastoral ministry, over and over again, 99.9% .9 of all the, 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 the things I've done in my counseling is, is because there's a lack of an understanding or a vision of God's love. So let's define God's love for a few moments. Uh, the great theologian Burkhoff defined love like this. He said, God's love is that perfection of God, by which he is eternally moved to self-communication. And, and other theologians, some not Reformed, have given a similar definition. Uh, Millard J. Erickson said, in, in general, God's love may be thought of as his eternal giving or sharing of himself. And Samuel Storms wrote, love is simply the communication by God of himself to his creatures. 
Going back all the way to Augustine, uh, he, he defined love as being an intimate self-communicating with others. In fact, what's interesting about Augustine is that he used this particular attribute as, as, as a defense for the doctrine of the Trinity. If love is self-communication, if love is sharing of himself to others, then there must be someone to share and communicate with. He said there's no love if there's no one to direct that love towards. And thus, if God is love, he must eternally have someone toward whom that love is directed. And so he develops the doctrine of the Trinity through this attribute of his love. And, and more recently, a Christian philosopher by the name of Richard Swinberg wrote, There is something profoundly imperfect and therefore inadequately divine in a solitary divine individual. If such an individual is love, he must share. And sharing with finite beings such as humans is not sharing all of one's nature. So it's an imperfect sharing. A divine individual's love has to be manifested in a sharing with one another or, or, or with another of uh, another divine individual. And again, what these philosophers and theologians are saying is that, that love is, is self-communication and that the persons of the Trinity live in this indivisible union of love, seeking the glory and the pleasure of the other. But again, because God is love, his nature is to share. And when God decreed to, to create and to create beings, moral beings in his own image like ourselves, and to pour himself into them in his love, he, he did so that we might be caught up in his pleasure and joy. And so you know the catechism, uh, don't you? The first question Perhaps you don't know any of the other uh, question and answers, but I think we all know the first one. What is the, the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? Yeah. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You know, Augustine, again, writing in his confession, says, uh, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until it rests in you. Because, again, we were made to know God's love. We were made to enjoy God and to love Him back, to respond to Him, to mirror His love. And so salvation itself is described in the Scriptures as God's love being given to us, isn't it? John 3.16, you can think of many other verses. You know, 1 John, it's, a, it's an amazing epistle. We're going through it in our evening services in, in Calvin. Uh, but in, in John's epistle, he says that really salvation is, is ultimately that you know, we're being made in the image of Christ. You know, in chapter 3, he says, you know, we, we are already the sons of God. We don't know what we're going to be like, but when we see him, we're going to be like him. Now, I don't know, you know, and John said, I don't know what, it, what all that really means right now. But one thing is for sure, we're going to be like Christ. But why are we going to be like Christ? Well, in the, in the first chapter, he says, I'm writing these things to you that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. Ultimately, we are made in Christ's image. We are being made in Christ's image. Paul says that we are predestined, that we might be conformed into the image of the Son, that we might be glorified with Him. But that glory 
and being made in the image of Christ is so that we might have fellowship, that we might enjoy God in intimacy, in fellowship. That's what God made us for. His love is, his love is, 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 his character of love is that we might share in his beauty, that we might share and enjoy him. And again, Jesus prayed. This is a most amazing prayer. John 17, the night that he is being betrayed, he's, he's praying to his father, and, and Jesus turns to his father and he says, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Doesn't that stagger you? <laughs> I understand the father loving the son. But to hear the son say that the father loves us like, like he loves him, that's amazing. It's amazing. But again, you hear in this that, that Jesus is, is sanctifying himself. Jesus is going to the cross. He's, he's, he's accomplishing salvation for the very purpose that we might share with the father, that we may know his love, that we might, might be in unity with him we might be glorified. Now, again, we can't separate the attributes of God. But there's a sense in which we can say that love is the ruling attribute of the divine nature. And I only say that because 1 John, again, chapter 4 and verse 16 says that God is love. No other attribute is, is expressed like that in the scripture. It never says God is wisdom, although God is wise never says God is mercy or God is justice. It does say God is love. Well, perhaps in, in, in Isaiah 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. But still, this expression of 1 John 4, 16, God is love. And I believe that love is given the singular attention because it is the attribute that communicates all the other attributes to us. Love is that self-communicating, is that sharing. If God is wisdom, his love communicates that wisdom to us. If God is good, it's his love that communicates his goodness to us. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love towards us. That while we're yet still sinners, Christ died for us. What but love moves God's sympathetic feelings of mercy towards us, the miserable sinners? What but love sets wisdom to ingeniously devise our redemption? What but love stimulates infinite power to execute his plan? Well, let's look at some of the qualities of his love. There's, there's maybe we're not going to be able to, to discuss many of them, but, but three. The first is his love is a free love. Hosea 14, verse 4. God says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. Now, there is nothing in the creature that could draw God to them. It's only owing to the freedom of his own sovereign will and love. Paul mentioned in, in Ephesians 1 verse 5 that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ himself according to the kind intention of his will. Or in 2 Timothy 1.9, he saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus 
from all eternity. And again, because this love is from within himself, it's without regard to any good qualification or work of righteousness that's in us. Uh, that's good news for us. You know, we as, as people, we're often drawn in love to others because of some quality. That, I mean, perhaps it's their beauty or their riches or uh, their power or their strength or, or some such thing. But instead of beauty, what does God find in us? He, he finds deformity. Instead of strength, there's weakness. Instead of riches, there's nothing but poverty. And so God's love is independent. He loves, not because of what we have, but because of what he has. Again, Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrated his love to us. When? When we were sinners. Again, 1 John 4, 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. There wasn't anything in us that, that he could look at. We were, we're deformed, we're weak, we're, 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 we're sinners, we're rebels. And yet, his love reaches out. That's, that's a marvelous, comforting thing. I hope you, you find that comfort. Because then that love can come to anyone. I don't care how, how sinful you have become. I don't care what, what race you are. I don't care... Love is not found in you, it's found in him. When you consider also the impediments he must overcome to demonstrate his love, you'll see that his love is an invincible love. For instance, you know, the distance of, uh, between God, the creator, and man, the creature, is, is an infinite gap. But that, but that huge gap did not stop God from making known his love to us. God, John says, was manifested in the flesh. Think of the moral distance between a, fifth, uh, a filthy, stinking sinner and the holy, righteous God. But was that impediment too, too great for him? You know, the, the prophet says that God is so holy he can't even look upon sin. John tells us that God dwells in light, that God is light, and there is no darkness in him. And yet, we are all darkness. We're all sin. But that didn't stop God. His love pursued us. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was made a curse for us that we might be redeemed from the curse of the law. Isn't that marvelous? When this love comes to the sinner, it finds him dead in trespasses and sins. But Paul says, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together in Christ. His love is an invincible love. Nothing can stop him from loving you. Nothing can, can separate you. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 35, he asks that question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Well, what about tribulation? Will that separate you? No. What about distress? Okay, persecution. No, not even persecution. Famine? Nakedness? Peril? What about the sword? Will that separate us? Nope. Even the sword, the sharp blade of the sword can't separate you from, from Christ's love. 
And Paul says, in all these things, and we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. His love is an invincible love, and as it's given to us, it makes us invincible. We become overcomers, more than conquerors, because of his invincible love. And the love that he has for us is a superlative love. David prayed in the Psalms, your love is better than life. You know, and, and men make, they make great account of their riches. They boast and, you know, maybe having six figures in their savings account. But the apostle tells us in 2 Corinthians, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. You know, when, when God appeared to Abraham to establish his covenant with him, in, in Genesis chapter 15, God approaches Abraham and he says, uh, do not fear Abram. Do not fear Abram. I am a shield to you. Your exceeding great reward. That's the superlative love of God. He just doesn't give us things. He gives us himself. He becomes our reward. That's staggering. That's amazing. That's his love, his superlative love. Well, running shortly out of time. But bear with me as we look at the dimensions of God's love. If you like, you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Look at two verses there from Ephesians 3. Paul prays for the Ephesians and, and through the Ephesians even for us. He says that, uh, he prays that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Now, that's such a rich passage, and we only have a few minutes, so that we're not going to be able to unpack it all. But isn't it an amazing thing that he says that you may be filled up with the fullness of God? His love, again, is that, that love that, that communicates himself to us, that, that fills us up. But did you notice also that he says that this is a, now, a knowledge, his, a knowledge of his love, is a, it surpasses knowledge? We've been saying that all week. The various pastors have been saying that, that God is inscrutable. That yes, we know something of it, but, but how can you know the fullness of it? We know his love, but, but again, for all eternity, we will be singing and, and wondering at his love. But let's look at the four dimensions. The first dimension is the breadth of God's love. In Revelation 5, verses 9 and 11, uh, the saints in heaven are praising the Lamb because he purchased for God with your own blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and the number of them was myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands. Isn't that the fulfillment of John three sixteen? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. There's much to say about that term world. We'll, we'll come back to it in just a few moments. But, but for now, anyway, I want to say at least the, the world and, and is, is both Jew and Gentile. Barbarian and Greek, male and female, slave and free, rich, poor, great or small. The love of God is, is broad because his heart is, is wide and ample. 
Remember Jesus in the night that, that he was gathering it for the last time, the last meal that he had with his disciples, and he tells them in John 14, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. You will never need to fear that there's no room for you because his love is broad. And the amazing thing is, though there is, as, as we read in Revelation, an innumerable multitude that his love has grasped and arrested, yet there's room for you. Yet he, he, he notices you, each of you personally. Not just the vast multitude, but you as individuals too. Every week in our, in our church in Phoenix, we recite the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And, and, and often, or at least sometimes, I'll, I'll comfort the, the congregation. I'll say, you know, look around, look around this room. It's, you know, there, we've got a lot of empty chairs. Then you look down the mountain, you see all the houses in San Bernardino and then Riverside and, tell, you know, the millions of people that live in California, San California. And we're just a small little number. But it's a comforting thing to know that God's love is broad. And that he has his people all over the world, down throughout the ages, millions and millions. We are just one small group among a throng of people because God's love is great. That encourages me. I hope it encourages you. But also, let's look at the length of God's love for a few moments. The length of his love. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. God spoke to his people saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Now, if you look back to eternity past, you will find that his love with his, himself, he never had a beginning. And look to eternity future, and you will find it has no end. Indeed, Psalm 103, verse 17 declares, But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him. Ephesians 1 tells us that we were chosen in Christ when? When were we chosen in Christ? Before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, verse 8 tells us that there's a book in heaven. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. In that book, every name of every saint is, is listed there. But when were those names penned there? When were those names put there? John tells us before the foundation of the world. That, that causes me to stagger in gratitude. I was known and loved by Christ in eternity. He owned me then, and he owns me now and forever. And as you think of the length of this love, how uh, it has no interruptions, you know. Whatever happens, it's constant. It goes on. There are no variables in the length of this love. It doesn't peak and then drop. It's like a straight line that reaches from eternity to eternity. It's a marvelous promise of his love that though all hell should endeavor to shake your soul, I'll never no, never, no, never leave you. You know who George Matheson was? He, he was, a, uh, he was a, a, a pretty brilliant scholar in Scotland in the early 1830s or 1800s. Um, 
he was given his first uh, charge as a pastor in, in Port Glasgow, just a little bit north of Glasgow itself. And he went blind. And it, his fiancée said, I can't be married to a blind man. So she broke off the engagement, and there he was left brokenhearted. Well, his sister cared for him. But then one day, his sister met a man and fell in love and got engaged. And the night before she got married, he dropped into a deep depression. He lost everything. His, 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 his fiancée left him. Now his, his sister, who's taking care of this blind man, is, is getting married, and, and he's going to be left alone. But then he began to meditate upon God's love. I think you have it in your hymn books. I don't know if it's in the blue, but certainly in the red. Oh, love that will not let me go. See, that's the length of his love. I don't care how far you drop. I don't care how, how, how great you sin. His love, the Bible says, will not let you go. When you go through hard times, and you will. Not, not today, but tomorrow you will. Next week, next month, next year. And you go through those hard times, and you think God's love can fail you? That it ebbs and flows? No, the length of his love comforts us. He has set his heart and affections on you in eternity, and beloved, they will not vanish in time. They will not vanish forever. Then there's the depth of God's love. Philippians chapter 2 talks about how God, or how Christ existed in the form of God. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taken the form of a bondservant, be made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's the depth of his love. God taking on human form, that's an amazing condescension. I, I can't imagine. I can't, I, my mind doesn't grasp around that too easily. But the scriptures say it. God became man. And as a man, he wasn't born in the palaces. He wasn't born with a silver spoon. No, he was born in a stable. He was born in poverty. Uh, but as a man, he became a bondservant. And as a bondservant, <laughs> he went to the point of death. You, do you hear what's going on there? He goes down, 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 down. For the very purpose of lifting you up. John 3.16, uh, we already mentioned that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, now, what is the world? We already mentioned that the world includes all of humanity. Jews and Gentiles, white and poor, or, you know, rich or poor, white, black, whatever. Uh, but what kind of world is this that's contemplated in John 3.16? B.B. Warfield actually has a really good sermon on this. Where he makes the case that, that this is the world of sin. This is a world that was made for God's pleasure, but rebelled, became evil and disgusting. A world deserving his wrath and condemnation. A world that, that knows the truth, but suppresses it in godliness and righteousness. A world where there is no righteousness, no one seeking after God, no one doing good. Lying tongues, mouths filled with curses, feet swift to shed blood. That's the kind of world that Christ came to. And when Christ came to this world, how do they treat him? Well, John tells us. He came to his own, and his own received him not. And those scribes and those Pharisees and those religious leaders, you know how they treated him with malice and with spite, and they mocked the Lord of creation? They had him scourged and crucified, 
plated with a crown of thorns on his head, crucified with terrible blasphemies. And if that wasn't deep enough, the wrath of God was emptied onto him. So great. The sun had to hide it. The earth began to quake because of it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried. The depths of his love to this unethical, dirty, sinful, God-hating world that God sent his only begotten son. This shows us that God doesn't sit idly by watching the world hopelessly hurl itself into destruction. No, but he pursues it. His love communicates himself to this world, saying, I am your God, I am your Savior. So deep is his love, descended even to the depths of hell itself, the dying agonies of his Son, to bring you and I and all who would trust in him out of the depth of misery, into glory. Well, let's look at the height of his love. You know something that's amazing to me? If God sent his son to save us to, and to bring us into his kingdom as slaves, that would be a glory in itself that I would rejoice forever in. But does God do that? Does God just bring you into his kingdom as slaves? No. We're, we're told that he brings us in and he brings us into the adoption of sons. The height of glory. He went to the depth to raise us to the height. You know, Athanasius, uh, he was one of the church fathers who, who valiantly defended the doctrine of the Trinity and the divinity of Christ against the Arians. But, but Athanasius said, the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. Again, remember Jesus' prayer? The glory which you have given me, I give to them that the world may know that you love me even, or love them even as you love me. The glory that the Son has, He gives to us. We are saved. We have been foreknown, foreloved, that we might be conformed to His image that we might share in his glory. I don't know what that really fully means. One day we will. But it's wonderful. Who can tell how the Father loves the Son? There is more in that than all the angels of heaven are capable either to know or to conceive or to express. And this is the love that God has for us. No wonder that Paul calls this love of Christ a, a, a knowledge that, that surpasses knowledge. Well, when I think of this love, when I contemplate this love, and when I survey this love, I, I think we, we must sing with Isaac Watts. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We have trials and difficulties in this life. Storms. Perhaps some of you are, are going past the storms. Now you're in a full-blown hurricane. <laughs> there are these things that buffet the soul. 
storms of suffering and sickness, storms of attacks and shames, storms of grief, loss. But even though our souls are buffeted, beloved, we can remain firm and calm and secure because we know that we're loved by God. In fact, Paul, as he writes here in Ephesians 3, he says that we are grounded in this love. I want you to be grounded in this love. When you build a house, you, you want to build it upon a good foundation, right? You don't want to build it upon sand. Why? Because sand shifts. It moves. And Paul and God want you to know that his love doesn't shift. It doesn't move beneath you. It doesn't change because circumstances around you do. This is a love that doesn't dissolve or melt away like ice does when the sun comes out. God's love is, is an infinite love. It's an immutable love. It's a powerful love. And if we would desperate grasp glimpses of it from time to time, meditate upon the cross, beloved, because there's the grand demonstration of God's love even for you. In that moment where... where where God poured all his wrath, all his fury against your sin upon his son, even there we see his love for you. That's how much he loves you. It's a love that, that how can you fully know? A thousand years from now, a million years from now, a billion years from now, if we count, if we count years in eternity, we'll still be wondering about the depths, the heights, the breadth, and the length of this love. Amen. Well, I think that's, uh, uh, that's about time. <laughs> so, well, I, but uh, I don't think we have time for questions, but I'll be here if you have any questions or you'd like to, to talk. I'll be up here. Otherwise, I guess uh, dismiss them.